Welcome to the Radical Real Estate Podcast with Coos and Kale. I'm Carl Kuzer. And I'm Kale Thomas. Are you supposed to say who you're with? Oh, yeah. I'm with Lawyer's Title. I'm, I'm, I'm the broker owner of Elite Properties Direct. Welcome. Glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> right. But we, <laughs> we are the, the proprietors of this podcast. This product. This product. So uh, before we get too deep, I just wanted to let everyone know, you can email us if you have any comments or questions. You can email us at radicalrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's radicalrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Carl, how are you doing? I'm great. Doing good. It's been a while since we did one of these. It's good. It's summer. It's a little hotter now. Just a tad. Um, I like it though. Yeah. No pun intended because the real estate market's a little hotter now. Ah. Uh, um um, all right, so I guess we'll dive right in to announce uh, kind of why we do this. We're just we're just trying to get ahead of, of current events before they impact the housing market or as they are impacting the housing market and then have a healthy debate about what may be coming our way or what, what do these events mean to us? What do they mean to you as a homeowner, uh, et cetera? So um, we are looking to have future guests. Yes, we are. On this One podcast. Day. Next Let's make it a point that next show we'll have a guest. All right, I agree. Like a other realtor, uh, government affairs, uh, lenders, an yep. escrow person, home warranty. I would love that. Let's do it. Okay. Duly noted. We'll make it happen. If you are that person, email us at that aforementioned email. Yeah. Radical Real Estate Podcast at gmail.com. So, who is this podcast for? It's for homeowners, future homeowners. Realtors, real estate industry professionals, or just anyone looking to gain the, uh, an understanding of what might be coming up in our industry. And so what we kind of do each time is we go through the IYR index, which gives us a little bit of a, just an idea of how the real estate market in general is doing. So this is not only residential real estate, but it includes things like commercial real estate hotels, for example, and residential real estate. So currently, Carl, we closed on Friday at a number of 81.22. Which is looking pretty good. Which is fairly strong, yeah. Because when we started this, it was back in the low 70s, I believe, when we started looking at it with our first podcast. I, I do believe so myself. And just to give everyone out there some context, A, you can go look this up on, if you haven't, you know, stock charts on your phone, Look at the IYR index. It's actually an ETF, but um, the low of that ETF was 2098, so just below 21 at the bottom of the housing crash after 2008. And then the high prior to the housing crash was 94.99, so round up to 95. And that was slightly into 2006, yep. early 2006. So the IYR started to see problems after 2006. Not, you know, not a bad predictive tool, actually. Right. Because in 2006, it really started to take a significant decline from the top and then just really fell off in the kind of 2007, 2008 era. Yeah, and we look at it right now, and, you know, we've said this in our podcast previous to this, but it's, it's just, it's really workmanlike moving steadily upward and in a healthy fashion. Nothing that's uh, precipitous incline, and it'll have some comeback you know, in uh, 
healthy fashion and then move its way right back up. Nothing, nothing scary. It looks healthy, looks good, uh, progressing forward slowly but surely. So I guess the takeaway for me on that is there's really nothing alarming here to tell me that we've got some sort of issue coming. Yeah. If anything, I think it's kind of consolidating where it is and steadily moving up in this kind of upward trending channel, so to speak. And so in a matter of months, it's probably gone up, what, 10 basis points or... Give or take. Yeah. That's not bad. It's pretty pretty healthy pretty up move healthy. for the real estate market. All right. So moving right along, something that has been a big topic here locally and nationally, I imagine, is inventory. Right. Low inventory. With that said, sellers having an easier time selling homes than they probably should have, and buyers having a little bit more of a difficult time buying homes than they really should have. Right. Sellers are getting multiple offers once it's listed, not really staying on the market too entirely long, maybe a matter of days if that, and uh, selling for top dollar. I would agree. Yeah. Homes that are uh, reasonably priced are selling very fast. Even homes that are in my opinion, a little overpriced, still seem to be moving, which is, it's just, it's kind of odd, but yeah. it is what it is. So we, we t I think we talked a little bit about this in our last podcast, but we didn't really dive too deep. But um, you had an interesting article about, um, I guess, shedding some light on maybe why one of the reasons we are having a little bit of an inventory issue. Yeah, well, in the last podcast, we talked about some of the reasons that were contributing to the low inventory. And we discussed things such as uh, some of the people that were upside down were waiting uh, a little while longer before they sold because they wanted to, to, to get some of what they were missing out on because they were still just barely above water or, you know, wanted to uh, maximize their, their equity in order to get something since they had suffered, so to speak. Right. They were, they were upside down and they'd gone through this, so they were going to get the most out of it that they could. Um, others, uh, you know, there's probably, we talked about three or four different things. And um, the one thing that is new is the fact that there's an article that I found on Inman News that talks about from 2005 to 2016, the number of owner-occupied single-family residents dropped by... 680,000, this is nationwide, obviously, and that the number of renter-occupied or absentee owners, as we refer to them, increased by 6.2 million nationwide. That is a staggering number. So what that means for, for our listeners is you've got a lot of investment properties out there that would otherwise be, or a large majority of them anyways, would be ready to turn over and sell right now if they were owner-occupied. But these investors are are they're cash flowing. They're they're returning a, a, on ROI. They're returning a nice investment through through rental income, and they're holding on to them. Otherwise, they'd be selling, and that would be a factor that would increase inventory. And you know, the low inventory dilemma would be somewhat mitigated by the fact there'd be more properties on the market for sale. And I'm. You know, we talked about this before we started recording, but as I'm hearing you say it again, what shows up for me is this time around when we had the problems, you know, there were a lot of big Wall Street firms putting together billions of dollars mm -hmm. to purposely buy single family residence homes and start these REITs 
with these types of properties on a scale that we've never, ever seen before. So I'm, I'm just wondering how much of an impact that has because that, that had to be a major shift. That's interesting because a lot of the REITs, at least for me, I always think of commercial properties when I think of REITs. I would venture to say that a lot of single-family residences and condos and things like that are probably bundled in into some of these as well. I would, I, like for example, Blackstone was a, a big yes, player. Yes, and you know I, I saw Blackstone representatives on CNBC several times talking about you know their single-family residence REITs and the performance of those and how stable they were and how you know in an environment where everything else was falling apart they were diving in to these types of investments and getting some big money to follow them. Mm -hmm. So um, at any rate, it's just interesting. I'm wondering how much of a difference that made because that's a, just a huge major player. You know, a big difference from mom and pop saying, hey, let's buy a, a rental property and a, a firm like Blackstone saying, we're going to deploy X amount of billions of dollars to buy these assets. And, and truth be told, if you go back and do the research, a huge market for them was Southern California specifically. Right. So our market is definitely impacted by them and others like them. And that's probably, if you were to uncover it and somehow able to find the data, that is a contributing factor to our inventory situation, without a doubt. So another thing that comes to mind is I recently did a, a transaction here in town on a higher end property and the buyer was uh, an overseas investor, uh, some Chinese money that came in. Bingo. <laughs> and I was talking to the other agent, and um, she's, she speaks the language, and she travels back and forth and has many clients in China. And what she was telling me is that, um, you know, the way the Chinese culture is, if someone goes in, a, a friend or a family member or someone that they trust... And that person goes in and, and buys real estate in um, a said town, city, what have you, and they have a good experience, then more of the friends, families, relatives, et cetera, are apt to jump in. And what she said is, now Temecula Wine Country, locally here, has kind of been spot spotlighted, so to speak, and that kind of the floodgates were now open, now, it, now more investors in China feel comfortable because enough have gone before them right. to um, purchase here. And ironically, after she told me that, there was an article in the LA Times that had posted, and it said, uh, Ch Chinese investment funds or Chinese in investors eyeing Temecula's wine region. Something right. I'm paraphrasing, but... And anecdotally speaking, I can tell you that a lot of the transactions that I see from a title perspective are that very situation and having to have documents signed by the consulate or the embassy over there, uh, we see that chatter in the email traffic on that needing as we go deal with escrow and, and getting documents signed that need to be signed. In my 18 year career, have never seen that to this level. It's, it's once a week, there's a conversation occurring for a particular transaction. Which may not sound like a lot, but if it's me on my transactions, how many other, from sure. all the other competitors out there, is that happening also? And it's just for, 
from my my transactions that I'm involved in. Right. So, and again, just an anecdote, but it's it's got to speak to the larger measure of what's going on in the valley. I mean, I didn't see that ten years ago. Maybe, maybe once a year, <laughs> right? Right. And from my standpoint, um, you know, I saw some some overseas money come in when we had the the REO meltdown, and then it, it seemed to me like kind of cool off a little bit. And it wasn't really until this last year or six months that I've seen it kind of heat up again. Oh yeah. And I don't know if that's just me and what I'm noticing kind of boots on the ground as I'm going through these things, or if that's, like you say, indicative of, of the market, but that's what I'm seeing on my end, right. be, being uh, a, you know, a practicing realtor. Um, For sure. And so the, the other thing that you and I had talked about was, or before we move on, anything else to say about that article that you have? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. And I, and I think it's probably indicative of, you know, there's, of course, there's a number of factors, but, you know, beyond everything we talked about last time, um, that was something that we did not, you know, discuss. And I found it to be um, enlightening that coupled with uh, obviously the, the foreign investment, you know, also, you know, not, not just to say Chinese, there's a lot of Canadian investment here too. You know, they they um, seem to be players also, especially, you know, my not necessarily in, in Temecula per se, but in, in out in the desert, you have a lot of Canadian investors. You know, my colleagues out in Palm Springs, Palm Desert and things like that, they get a lot of, but we get some here too. And, uh, you know, snowbirds as we call them. Right. But uh, it, it's not all Canadian money, but you, there's a lot of foreign investment in general in, in this area and we're, we're on the map. And so between that and the uh, investment properties in general, I mean, that's, that's a huge contributor to why the inventory issue is what it is right now. Well, I think, and there's the last piece that we briefly talked about, which is the, the millennial generation mm-hmm. who statistically have not bought into the housing market at the rate that previous, like I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, right? And you are too. So founding member. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, our generation kind of, we jumped into the housing market right. full speed ahead. Um, millennials, not so much. But the, the point that's being made now is the millennial, the oldest millennials are 36-ish, give or take. Uh, upper, upper, yeah. And so they are of the age where they have kids and maybe multiple kids and they're married and they have a family and they're just, you know, looking around at each other at the, at the apartment complex saying, this isn't working anymore. You know, we need a yard. We would like to have a more stable environment for our kids. And I think, you know, that speaks to the benefits of owning a house is I do think it creates a more stable environment for families and whatnot. Um, But I digress from that and go back to the fact that millennials, I think, are now in a position where the older millennials, they really don't have a choice. And they're really kind of being faced with this dilemma of what am I going to do with my growing family? Let's continue that on the other side. Welcome back to the Radical Real Estate Podcast with Kuz and Kale. We're good back. Show, good show so far, Kale. Thanks, you're Carl. Pretty, you're a pretty smart dude. I don't know about that, but I'm a dude. I, I get smarter just by hanging out. I think maybe through osmosis with you. It's a natural occurring thing. I feel bad for you. <laughs> don't. 
So, um, you want to talk some? Want to talk some trash on millennials? More, more, hey, millennials are people too. Uh, they are. I've heard so, that you know, before. that's kind of funny because we're kidding. We're not talking trash on millennials, but millennials are so. <laughs> we're kidding. <laughs> branded. Like, Un- unfairly. Those millennials. Yeah. But it's just like when we were Gen Xers, you know, and we were all losers. Yeah, we had earrings and crazy hair and eyeliner. You had guy liner. I, uh, I did. But at any rate, um, millennials are people too, and people have families every now and then. And so here's the dilemma with with millennials is that they're getting to the point where they are having these families and they're expanding and they, they see the need now for a home. But here's the problem. They haven't, for years, millennials have not been buying homes at the rate that one would maybe predict they might buy homes based on past generations. So therefore builders have not been building because there's a lack of demand from them. And you had an interesting observation as to why that was, because you said before the show, their experience with what they saw their parents go through. So let's just say you're a millennial and you know, it's eight years ago. 2017? Yeah, eight years ago. You know, your your parents have just lost a house or maybe two houses. Maybe they got a divorce because they had a strained financial situation and things weren't good. Times weren't really good for families in general with, you know, teens at the time. Right. And or maybe early 20s. And, you know, they see their their parents go through this really big drawdown, uh, financial reversal, if you will. And it caused all kinds of problems for them. And so there has to be something in the back of their mind saying, I'm not doing that. Yeah, what, what, what's in it for me? Yeah. I, I saw my parents go through this terrible, cruddy situation, and why would I want to put myself in that situation too? Yeah, I'm not going to own a house. Yeah. Forget that. So and, that negative connotation, I think, has rolled with them for years. And maybe now that the housing market's stabilized and and been doing well for several years, it it's less of an issue. So, you know, time heals all wounds type sure, thing. Sure. Uh, but that, I, I would think that has to have some sort of impact on the way that housing shows up or occurs for millennials. Right. And then another idea I had that I, you know, I, I mentioned too to you before we started on air was think about the environment that millennials live in where everything is instantaneous they're used to almost on demand virtually everything it it comes to them but then you juxtapose that with the home buying process which is not instantaneous and very drawn out and very complicated and convoluted and then you throw trid in on top of that and it's everything but what they're used to experiencing. And I can see perhaps how a millennial would take a step back from that and say, why would I want to engage in something that is so opposite of what I'm used to? You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, maybe there's something as an industry where we need to take a look at our processes and <laughs> streamline them. I mean, I know it's an ongoing process for every segment of the industry to refine and, and streamline, but it still never changes. I mean, it still takes 35, 30 to 45 days to close an escrow. Has that, when has that ever changed? 
It really has. And because there's, there's some behind the scenes things that you have to account for, like the inspection contingency, for example. So, right. you know, hey, you, your, your offer got accepted. That's great. Now what? Well, you, you probably need to find out what condition that home is in. And that's not instantaneous because you, you physically have to get a home inspector to go out and do a probably a three-hour inspection on a tr- – we're talking about a tract home, for example. And then in that, you know, the, the inspector is going to take two days to type up a, a lengthy report. It's probably a 40- or 50-page report on the house. And they're going to go through everything and tell you all the little problems. Well, okay, now you have a, a book report on the house telling you what's wrong with it. And a lot of these things are going to be outside of the scope of what you're comfortable with or what you're used to. So you, now you're going to have to consult with other professionals to find out, well, wh- well, what does it cost to have this plumbing issue fixed? What does it cost to have that roof issue fixed? Who's going to pay for that? And so you might have to get s- some more people out to take a look at the house to give you estimates. And then you've got to, and that could eat up a couple more days. And then you've got to put in writing an, uh, a request with the seller to see if perhaps they're going to repair some of these things or, or maybe compensate you for mm-hmm. some of these repairs. And that takes time. And so to, you ca- I think there are things we could do to speed up the process, right. by all means. But there are some things that by design need to be drug out a little bit. And really for the protection of the buyer, they need to have several days to consult with other people, think about what the impact of the condition of the house is going to be and things like that. And I get that and I agree, but I think from the 30,000 foot level, they don't know anything about that and it's just thrown in the pot and the home buying process itself is is what's seen as the process. <laughs> Man, that's a drag. That takes forever. Oh, oh. you know. Well, and, the, and I think that's where the real estate agents need to come in and step up and educate their buyers on what's coming next. So right. they're not completely surprised. Right. And I think, you know, like lawyer's title is a very good job of having literature available to explain what is title? What right. is escrow? What can you expect? Here's your expectations. What's for your this timeline business? look right. like? Right. And so those are the conversations where, you know, we as agents need to be out there using tools, you know, that you guys have to educate our our clients and make them feel like, okay, I kind of can wrap my head around this process and why it takes so long. Right. Because it's not an Amazon Prime purchase. <laughs> Although uh, they're trying that. Zillow, I think, right? Instant offer. Instant offer. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even then, so like there's, you know, these auctions and instant offers and other things that make it seem like you can own a home right now. But the reality is... Do you, you really s- want to own a home right now? No. And, I wouldn't. Unless, you know, unless you're an investor and you've educated yourself on a particular subject property and you're bidding on it at auction all cash and you're comfortable with the risks. Okay, that's something different. But that's not your typical first-time home yeah, buyer. We're not all fix or flop. Right. Or was, it, was that, is that the name of the show? Fix or flop? Flop or... I just flop. Flop or drop. Flop or drop. Flip or fix. <laughs> fix or flip. Fix or upper. I like that one. Fix or upper. So right. what, you're, what I'm hearing from us is that <laughs> um, institutions like BlackRock are putting billions of dollars to buy investment properties... Uh, we've got more, more people owning investment properties than ever. We've got foreign investment cash coming in to purchase properties. 
And we have millennials that are not really buying at the rate that other young families Other generations of that age group have in the past. There you go. Right. So put it all together and what do you have? A melting pot of what if. But the market's still good despite the uncertainty. Well, I think we have... This to me... Speaks gives me sp- some context around why we have an inventory shortage. Yeah. But that's to me, that speaks to the strength of the market that even with all that and the low inventory, the market's still moving away, moving ahead, slow but steady. Well, I guess, and the unsaid thing here is we as a society keep uh, growing, right? There's more people on earth year over year, not less. True. There's only so much land, there's only so much real estate, and everyone needs a place to live. And so I just think the simple math is that builders have not been keeping up with demand, period, and more outside forces like Blackstone. Did I call him BlackRock earlier? You did. But everybody Shame on me. <laughs> Blackstone um, it, it is coming in and sucking up whatever inventory they can find. So long story short, it's just a simple supply and demand thing. We haven't been building enough homes Will we get back on track to do that? I'm, I would think there's a strong financial incentive for builders to do that. But then there's always that elephant in the room called interest rates. That's true. And I kind of wanted to touch on those today if we can. Yeah. So and, the Fed met last week. And as expected, right? Raised they, rates. They, they raised the benchmark a quarter point. But interestingly... I think it was already accounted for, was it not? Because as we sit here on a Saturday in the aftermath of it, rates are still below 4% for mortgage rates. So what I noticed is bonds, the bond market actually reacted the opposite. That's the other mystery I'm trying to figure out is, why is the bond market rallying, the S&P 500 is rallying, and rates are going up? None of it makes sense. I mean, you would think intuitively, okay, the Fed raises rates, Bonds are going to drop, and therefore interest rates would go up because they have that inverse correlation. Right. But it's almost as if the bond market – is the bond market telling us something? I don't know. It's Because I, I looked at – in anticipation of this, I looked at several different articles. Rates moved up a little bit, but still, like I said, below 4%, which historically speaking, it's great. Oh, right? yeah. It's amazing. No, no need to panic. But then – I read another article from bankrate.com, and they're expecting the rates to go back down a little bit next week. When you say rates, are you talking mortgage rates? Mortgage rates. Mortgage rates. Yeah. Got it. And so that would so okay. So that leads me to believe they think bonds are going to keep rising. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm getting at, and this is a little off topic, but our stock market has just been on fire lately. I mean, no rhyme or reason; it just keeps going up. Is the bond market saying, eh, we don't think it's going to keep going. It's bound to correct a little bit. Could be. And so people are rushing into bonds because bond bonds are the safety play. Safe harbor, right. It's kind of like gold. You don't, you, don't, you don't get rich necessarily in bonds, but it's a safe harbor to park your money when there's times of uncertainty. So sure. why is money flowing? Why are money? Why are, why are people investing in bonds right now? 
Because I think there's many, and this is just Carl speaking, uh, obviously, I, and don't, you know, disclaimer, don't ever follow my financial advice. I think there's people out there that don't trust the run-up in the stock market. I think that's, I 100% agree. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when, when I first heard the market went over 20, you know, I frankly did not expect to still be sitting here June 25th with the market still over 20. Yeah. Uh, it still befuddles me every day. And when I, I, I peek at my 401k and my IRAs and things like that, I'm astounded and, and I'm grateful. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think we might have low rates for at least the near future. That's good news. We'll take them. But don't count on low mortgage rates forever, people. That's true. Act fast. Hey, thanks thanks for listening. See you next time. Peace out.